Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for bringing us here, even though it's cold this morning and people are on fall break and people are sick. God, I I thank you that you brought us here this morning. And I pray that this wouldn't just be a time where we uh, come here and just kind of hear from you. We've done our thing on Sunday. It wasn't really a big deal, and we keep, we keep going on through our week. But God, that this would be, um, this would be a life-changing time. It would be amazing, God, and it would be just like you to take a simple, small gathering of just a few people on a Sunday morning in an old bank and use this, God, to be a catalyst for a great move of God. So I pray after we leave here that our hearts would be changed, that we would truly desire to uh, see your gospel go, not just to this city, but to the ends of the world. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got big plans and big hopes for today, um, and I'm hoping that it will um, cause within you a difference in your life. Um, You heard me pray that this would be just like God to take something where we gather together here as a small group of people and then something happens in our hearts and lives where we're transformed and we start radically changing the shape of this city. Um, Let me give you a couple stories to start off and then we'll we'll kind of recap about where um, where we're going and what we're doing today. If you don't have a Bible, you can turn to uh, 1 Timothy 2. There's there's Bibles all around you. If you don't have one, you can keep it. Um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up 1 Timothy 2. I said if you don't have a Bible, open to 1 Timothy. That's kind of insane since you don't have one. But there should be one underneath you and you can grab it and keep it. Um, you can just open there. We're going to get there in a second. But let me, uh, let me read you or tell you a couple stories and then we'll, we'll kind of go in there to the whole thing. While I was working on this book, I had an opportunity. This is uh, Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. Story number one. While I was working on this book, and I had an opportunity to hear J. Oswald Sanders speak. His message touched deeply on suffering. He was 89 years old and had written a book a year since he had turned 70. He told the story of an indigenous missionary. Indigenous just means that you moved into a people group, an area where they had never heard Jesus and you became just like them. That you adapted their culture, you learned their language, you became part of their customs. You didn't push your culture on them and try to make them transform to who you were. You became who they were and all their, and all their uh, customs and, and, and culture. And you started living as they did. That's an indigenous missionary. He told him the story of an indigenous missionary who walked barefoot from village to village preach, preaching the gospel in India. After a long day of many miles and much discouragement, he came to a, a certain village and tried to speak the gospel, but was spurned. So he went to the edge of the village, dejected, and lay down under a tree and slept from exhaustion. When he awoke, the whole town was gathered to hear him. The head man of the village explained that they came to look at him while he was sleeping. And when they saw his blistered feet, they concluded that he must be a holy man and that they had been evil to reject him. And they were sorry and wanted to hear that he was willing to suffer and bring so much to them. Story number two. This is about um, a uh, man that became a Christian in his, his small village. It says, One day Joseph, who was walking along one of these hot, dirty African roads, met with someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. Then and there, he accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. The power of the Spirit began transforming his life. He was filled with so much excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was to return to his own village and share that same good news with the members of his local tribe. Joseph began going from door to door, telling everyone he met about the cross of Jesus and the salvation it offered, expecting them to see their faces light up as, he, <clears throat> as the way his had. To his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him and held him to the ground while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. 
Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a water hole and there, after many days of passing in and out of consciousness, found the strength to get up. He wondered about the hostile reception he had received from people <clears throat> that he had known all of his life. He directed, he decided, I'm sorry, that he must have left something out or told the story of Jesus incorrectly. After rehearsing the message he had first heard, he decided to go back and share his faith once more. Joseph limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim Jesus again. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God, he pleaded. And while he was speaking, they grabbed the men of the village, grabbed him and they held him. And while the women beat him, reopening the wounds that had just begun to heal once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and they left him to die. To have to survive the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. Again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, and determined to go back. He returned to the small village, and this time they attacked him before he even had a chance to open his mouth. As they flogged him, which is a severe beating, for the third time, and probably the last, he again spoke to them of Jesus Christ the Lord. Before he passed out, the last thing he saw was that the women who were beating him began to weep. This time he awoke in his own bed. The ones who had severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. The entire village had come to Christ. There's a story in the Old Testament where Elijah was by himself against 450 prophets. 450 um, men that were ridiculing him, um, telling him that his God wasn't God, that he was no good. And as he was trying to tell these men about um, God and that, that God would truly save him, um, they had the first chance to try to... Um, they set up an altar and try to call down their God to consume this altar and, and, and kill these bulls. And... Um, all day long, all, the, all day long, these men who worship Baal, all 450 of them, were calling on their God. And it says that they were cutting themselves and, and screaming out for him to come. And so Elijah um, thinks it's kind of funny. So he starts mocking him, you know, saying, hey, maybe uh, maybe your God's out relieving himself. Maybe he's on the maybe he's on the um, bathroom. Maybe he's at the, at the toilet and he's kind of mocking him a little bit. And um, maybe he's out on a journey or maybe he fell asleep. You know, he's kind of mocking him a little bit. And then after that, um, he stands up and all 450 men ready to definitely kill him with a lot of boldness um, says, put some water on it, put some more water on it. Third time, put some water on it. And then he calls down um, God and it, he says, answer me, O Lord, answer me that these people may know you and that you are Lord because um, they have turned their backs to you. And then it says, then the fire of the, of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water so that it was in the trench. And listen to what happens in, in verse 39. It says, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, why am I telling you all these stories? Um, what's the point of telling you these different stories? Um, because there is one similarity, one thread that's going all, all the way through them. If you look at all the stories, um, there is a boldness about these men to proclaim the gospel to these people that I'm not sure we have. Now, I'm not sure that the people in Elijah's case came came to know Christ because after that, he, he, he says, seize them and kill them all. So I'm not really sure that they actually got saved. But um, the point is that they were extremely bold. All these men are extremely bold for Christ. And I think that we're missing out on some of this in our lives. Now, we, we started looking at this last week. And as we um, we looked at the first two, and as we looked at verses one through seven, we saw that um, Paul is exhorting us in some means to have a heart for local missions. He's calling us out to be on mission. Um, and as he's calling us out, we saw two things that we wanted to pray about last week. Um, the first one that we wanted to pray about was this, that we must pray that the gospel that they hear is the true gospel. Um, we don't want that as we hopefully would get the courage like these men to go out and start sharing the gospel, that we somehow soften it, that we somehow change it, that we want to say it's the social gospel or, or um, 
liberation theology or whatever, um, works righteousness, we want to, and we, we know this from the very um, preceding verses, from verses 12 through 20, that the, what the true gospel is, and that we would pray that the true gospel is, is going to go toward them. So as we're looking at this, there's going to be four things that we're going to want to try to grab onto, and they're all things that we should pray for. We, we looked at the first two last week, and the first is that we would start praying that the gospel that they hear would be the true gospel. And the second thing that we, that we prayed for is this. Um, we prayed for that. If you look in verse 2, um, it says, let me read verse 2 to you in First Timothy. It says that we would pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. And so the second thing that we want to pray for is that as we want the gospel to, to go forward here in this city, to go forward somewhere in the United States and to go forward somewhere in the world, that we would pray for the kings in these countries. Um, we would pray for those in high positions, which are the presidents and leaders, so that the gospel will be proclaimed safely in all these countries. And those are the first two things we prayed for, that they would hear the true gospel when they hear the gospel, and that we would also pray for kings. Now, the reason why we say that is because in verse 2, it says that we'll pray for kings and people in high places that, that we, talking about Christians, will live a peaceful and quiet life. And so Paul is warning Christians, and now we have to remember that we're talking about first century. He's wanting the first century Christians to get to live a peaceful and quiet life. Now, in the 21st century, we think that means play and relaxation, and we get to do whatever we want, and we get lots of free time to hang out. But in the first century, a peaceful and quiet life means you actually get to live, that you get to continue living. Um, and if you get to have a peaceful and quiet life and you get to live, well, if you're alive, you get to share the gospel. And so that's why he's saying that we'll pray for kings so that the kings won't kill us who are Christians. They'll let us lead a peaceful and quiet life, which doesn't mean we're just going to kind of retire and do nothing. But we're going to be more emboldened since we get to live to start sharing the gospel with people. So when we pray for a peaceful and quiet life here in 2009, we're not asking to get to play and have fun and, and hang out with people. We're asking that we get to live so that we can share the gospel with people. Um, so those are the first two things that we looked at last week. Um, and I read you a few statistics. Um, basically, that in the city of Rock Hill, there's 68,000 people. Um, not all of those are saved at all. And we challenged each other to try to start um, praying for people in this city and praying for people in the United States and praying for people in the world that they would start hearing the gospel. Um, we also learned last week that there's about 60,000 people, and, and some people will estimate even more. Um, 60, maybe I've heard into the 100,000 people that are killed per year for their faith all around the world. That's, that's basically the whole city of Rock Hill is killed every year because there are Christians somewhere in the world. And that's definitely not probably in the United States, um, but it's somewhere. And so we're wanting to understand why is it that missions is such an important thing? Why is it that sharing the gospel with people is such an important thing? Um, we obviously know because we don't want people to go to hell. Um, we don't want people to spend an eternity in hell if they don't know Christ. But this is a text. Um, this is Matthew twenty four fourteen. 14. Um, Jesus tells us this. Um, whenever he's talking about the end times, he tells us, and this gospel of the kingdom, talking about how to become a Christian, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So, the final stages of what's known as the eschaton, which is basically just the, the period of the end, the times. The, 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 we, eschatology is the study of last things. The eschaton is the period where it's all over. That won't happen. The second coming of Jesus, he will not come and set up his reign um, until this gospel has been proclaimed to all the world as a testimony to all the nations. When all the nations hear, then the end will come. Um, I was looking at a website which is dedicated to letting us know when all the nations, the Greek word there is ethne, when all the ethnic, the ethne or the ethnic groups or the people groups, when all of them have heard the, um, the gospel, then the end will come. They estimate there's about 16,000 people groups right now. And right around 6,000 of those people groups have still never heard the gospel. Every people group, there's 6,000, every single people group can have into the millions of people. Um, so there's, there's a lot of work to be done. A lot of work to be done. Um, so we're, we're kind of getting a glimpse or an understanding of this daunting task in front of us that um, it's a lot more work than we think for people to hear the gospel. Now... What I want to do is um, we're going to look at the other two 
uh, prayers that we can pray. And hopefully you'll have um, some kind of desire to pray for all four of these things daily. That God would bring about the end of his, um, his time here of us being here. And that he'll finally bring the second coming. What I'm hoping is going to happen is as you start praying... For, for the end to come, as you start praying for missions to happen, as you start praying for people to get saved all over the world, you yourself will be inspired to actually start sharing the gospel with people. Um, and I'm going to challenge you as we, as we go through this. This um, Let me read verses 3 and 4 in Second Timothy. It says this, um, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Um, when he says this is good, we're talking about those that are Christians get to have a peaceful and quiet life. We just read that in verse 2. If people in this world will have a peaceful and quiet life, this will be good. And it will be pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior, who desires all people to be saved. Now, there's a lot around that statement right there. And we're going to actually, um, the entire sermon next week, We'll be looking at how God desires all people to be saved and the complexities of, of what that means. If God desires or literally wills all people to be saved, yet all people aren't saved, does that mean that God is not um, sovereign? Does that mean he's not in control? We're going to unpack all of that next week and we're going to get into all the, the complexities of what that means. But what I want to do is just kind of take a straightforward reading um, when we look at it that all people need to be saved. That means all people who are on a pathway towards hell need to hear about Jesus so that they won't go to hell. So it says, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So this is the third thing that we can pray for. This is the third thing. The first one is that they would hear the true gospel. The second thing is that kings and, and presidents in high places will um, let Christians actually live. And the third thing is this, that we would pray for all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's what we should start praying for, for all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, there's there's two kind of. Um, two kind of stipulations on this, if you're going to pray for this, if you're going to pray for this, um, there's two things that you still need to know. Number one is that you still must share with people. Um, and number two is we have a tremendous privilege and actually being able to go to God and pray for this. All right. First thing is that you should still you should still share with people. If we're just going to pray that all people get come to a knowledge of the truth and not actually share with people, then we're not necessarily fulfilling God's purposes. All right. L- let me let me read a text to you. This is Romans chapter ten. It says, "How are they to call on Him and whom they've never and be- whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him and whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching?" Or just proclaiming. That's just doesn't mean you're standing here. It means that you're walking around through your life and proclaiming the good news to someone. How are they supposed to hear unless someone does that? And how are they to preach or proclaim unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed in what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So let's, let's get this down because you are not free from not sharing. If you're going to pray that all people get saved, you still have to share. And just notice this transition. We're going to walk backwards through that. And I want you to notice um, the steps that it happens. First of all, they have to hear. It says it right here. They have to hear the gospel. Someone has to tell them. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible for every pastor of every church to tell everyone about Jesus. It's just impossible. Every pastor needs every person in their church to join with them in this mission. It's impossible. So they have to hear. When they hear, then they'll have faith. That's the way he set it up. It doesn't it's not set up so that people are just walking around, just looking at um, walls and looking at malls and looking at the road and thinking, you know what? Um, there's a tree. I need to get saved by Jesus. They just don't believe that way. 
they can understand there is a God by looking at the skies and the trees. That's called general revelation. God reveals himself in a general way through creation. But there's another thing called special revelation, which is that God um, reveals himself salvifically the way that you can get saved through the person of Jesus. And so the only way they're going to know. So, yes, the people that live in the remote islands and look at creation, know that there's a God, but don't know how to go to heaven because no one has ever come and told them about Jesus. And they will perish if no one comes and tells them about Jesus. They have to hear. So when they hear, then they have faith. If they don't hear, they do not have faith. They die and will eternally be consciously tormented for the rest of their life. I'm I'm just not sure that that lands on us because we're saved. If you're a Christian, I'm a Christian. I know my security. I know where I'm going. And so I don't have to, you know, I feel bad. Sure. Hell, I mean, I don't want to go there. But (laughs) I'm not, but they are. But I know I'm not. And I think we just kind of walk through life knowing that we're not going. And I don't think we sit and contemplate that if we don't go and tell them the ramifications of their life are eternal. When's the last time you actually just sat there and thought about lost people going to hell and it started breaking your heart and you started weeping? When's the last time? If it hasn't been in a while, that means you're way too comfortable with your faith. They have to hear, and when they hear, then they'll have faith. And, and it, right here in, in um, verse 15, it says, they won't have faith unless someone is sent. They won't just blindly put their faith unless someone comes to them. So someone has to be sent. When someone's sent, then they'll call on him. If you walk backwards through the, the text, it's just a, a normal, natural progression that they hear because, and they put their faith in there because someone has come and tell them. And that's why it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Let me tell you a story. Um, I, uh, all of you have heard about this guy. His name's St. Patrick. And in a lot of ways, we mimic St. Patrick. Except for the end of his life where he actually starts going on mission. Patrick um, was known as the missionary to the Irish, basically. Um, he lived around the 4th century, 5th century and because of him, the West was one for Christ. Um, he was one of the very, very beginning guys that kind of set it up. Um, but he didn't start out that way. Um, Patrick grew up in a Christian family. Um, his, his, uh, dad, his grandfather was a priest, and he had acquired some teaching. How much does this sound like you? I just want to ask how much it sounds like. Maybe your granddad's not a priest, but maybe you've grown up, all of us I know have, kind of surrounded by Christianity. Um, he knew the catechisms. He was, he acquired Christian teaching. He knew the Bible stories. He went to church. Um, he ridiculed the clergy, uh, and in the company of the alienated, and the ungoverned youth, he lived towards the wild side. So whenever he wasn't at church, whenever he was with his, um, his friends, he lived just a nominal Christian life, a pagan lifestyle, got drunk, chased women, whatever, you know, whatever, um, Whenever he was 16 years old, he was captured by some pirates. He, P- Patrick was from England. He was captured by some pirates, and they took him, and they sold him into slavery um, back in, in, over in Ireland, and they put him to work herding cattle. Now, he, he came from a very wealthy family, stolen and kidnapped, sent over to Ireland with all of the barbarians, that's what he called them, and um, became a worker of the cattle. And it was during his enslavement when he started um, experiencing what would be profound changes in his life. In the end, um, he started praying up to 100 times per day and then in the night nearly as often. So just to shame all of us in our prayer time, he started praying 200 times a day. 200 times a day. But it says this, Patrick came to love his captors. Patrick came to love his captors. And then he finally got free and he went back to England. And as he was in England, he started feeling such a deep desire for his captors to get saved. He could not stand it any longer. He went back to the place where the barbarians were and became a missionary to them. 
He, started, he was a frontier missions guy, just like Paul. He would go, he took a band of people, he would start telling about people about Christ, they'd start getting saved, he'd set up a church and he'd go to another place and he'd take some new believers with him and he'd go over to this place and he'd set up a church, people would get saved, he'd leave some people there and take some new people with him. And he just started going all around. After him, um, a guy named Columba was a missionary. Listen to what le- kind of legacy. He, he did this all through Ireland and the West was one. He, he had another guy follow him that kind of picked up where he had and Columba started... Um, coming back and being a missionary to the people that were already saved, kind of like where we are. We need people to re-engage the, the saved Christian Western culture and, and actually get us really saved. This guy, Columba, did that because after Patrick came, they all became nominally Christians. Yeah, we're Christians. We go to church. We do all this stuff. And so Columba kind of had to come and, and come into this Irish culture and tell them, well, you're nominal. And then after that, there was a guy named Aiden who went back over to Germany and he became um, a missionary to the Germans and started teaching them about Christ. He left his Irish, Irish culture and went to another place. And so you, you just see kind of how the West, because of Patrick, just started becoming huge, huge as far as Christianity. And here's the progression we see. Nominal to loving the lost to world changing. So how much are we like Patrick? And how much could we be like Patrick? Nominal to begin to start loving lost to world changing. And I know you're thinking, yeah, but that's Patrick. Um, but I, don't, I am getting, I'm just getting tired. I'm getting tired of week in, week out, just feeling like all we're going to do is just come here and see each other again on Sunday. And we're not changing anything. I'm just getting tired of it. This isn't, what, this isn't what I dreamed of as far as church planning. We just come here, we see each other on Sundays, we shake each other's hand, maybe we go out to lunch, and we maybe go to small group, we maybe do community, we maybe start sharing our faith, we maybe get involved with unbelievers, um, we maybe care about unbelievers, we maybe, maybe... I'm just tired of it. This is not what I, this is not what I want Remedy to be. It's just a week in, week out, just like every other church, we're going to see each other on Sunday and shake each other's hands. Let me put it into perspective. There are right now 3,000 international missions, missionaries, 3,000, 3,000 in the entire world, 6 billion people in this world, probably a third of them are Christians. That means two thirds of the world are not Christians, 4 billion people, 4.7. We have 3,000 missionaries in the world. We as in Christians, I'm not saying Southern Baptists, I'm saying Christians. Right now, there are probably 2.7 people, 2.7 billion people that aren't Christians. There are, I'm sorry, 2.7 billion unreached people. That means they've never heard about Jesus, plus another 2 billion who have heard about Jesus that aren't Christians. 4.7 billion people aren't Christians in this world. 2.7, I've never even heard of Jesus. Billion. And we have 3,000 missionaries. It is just a daunting, daunting task. But we come here every week. We shake each other's hands on Sunday. And we run back out to our selfish-oriented lives. We don't... I'm not saying that you are going to be the one to go overseas, but maybe, just maybe, you could share the gospel with someone that gets saved that will go. I'm not calling you to go unless God's telling you to go, but there's got to be some people you can lead to Christ that will. There's got to be more missionaries here in America that would go. There's got to be more missionaries around the world in England or in France or somewhere if they would just get saved, if someone would just tell them that they would take the task and go somewhere. If you were to get your Bible, I was listening to a Francis Chan sermon, and this is a little bit different context of what he was talking about, but I think it's very much applicable to us. If we were to get this Bible and go somewhere by ourselves and not have any outside influence about what Christianity or church or nominalism or 
um, Christianity in America or how we come on Sundays and shake each other's hand and sing a couple songs and go back home and don't think about Jesus anymore. If we didn't have any of these outside influences of what church is supposed to be like in America or in the world, we just got this and we just went by ourselves and we weren't around anybody and we just read this from cover to cover and we just started letting the Holy Spirit teach us. What is it that my life should look like in regard to international missions and just local missions? What would my life look like? What is the appropriate response of what this Bible is telling me about the gospel, about Jesus, what the Holy Spirit is leading me? What would be my proper response in mission? In evangelism, in telling people about Jesus, what would be my proper response? I want you to think about that. What would be your proper response if you just had this Bible by yourself and you weren't around Christianity or you weren't around people in America and you just got this and you started reading this and acting like what this has said you're supposed to act like? How different would your life look right now compared to that? Would it be any different at all? Any different? I just don't think that we would have 3,000 missionaries with 2.7 billion people unreached. I just don't think we would. I think we'd have way more missionaries. I think we'd have way more people that are willing to count the cost and give their lives up, even if it means death. Because as Christians, we don't die um, and, and kill people for our faith. We go and be killed as martyrs so that they'll come to our faith. I think our lives would look much less selfish much less, much less self-oriented um, and a whole lot more Christocentric and that our lives, we would say, I don't count on my life for anything. I only may I make, live for his gospel. Acts twenty twenty four. I think it would be much different. There's another prayer that we can get out of this. The first is that, that third one is that we would start praying for all people to be saved. And if we really prayed for all people to be saved, then our lives would look different. This next one is even more provocative than that one. I'm going to go ahead and warn you. You probably are going to disagree with me in some things I'm going to say. Look what it says. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Here's the fourth thing. Here's the fourth prayer that we would pray. We would look at, let's look at verse one so we can understand why I'm saying thanksgiving. Because this is real. You're going to say, how how are you getting this out of these verses? I'm going to let you see. Verse one. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So we know that there's supposed to be, in some way, prayers of thanksgiving. The other three prayers are supplications, prayers, and intercessions. Uh, prayer one, prayer two, prayer three are prayers for supplications, prayers, and intercessions. Praying that people get saved. Pray that they hear the gospel. Pray that we would be able to live. This is a prayer of thanksgiving. He tells us that we should have thanksgiving. So out of verses five through seven, verses five through seven tell us about the gospel. They tell us how we got saved. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So we know that there is no way to get to God unless there is a mediator between us. And so this mediator, this man Jesus, has now... What it says in verse six, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus came and died for us. Now he's the mediator. He is the ransom. And we have access. We have eternal life through Jesus Christ to God, the father. We can be saved. That's the gospel. So if we're looking at verse one, that there should be Thanksgiving and we're looking at verses five through seven, which is the gospel, then we should thank God for our salvation. And for the salvation that he will grant to those who will believe. We will thank God for our salvation and for the salvation that he will grant to those who believe. We're ending on Thanksgiving that you have been saved and for the people that will come to faith as as a result of your life. There are huge, huge, huge assumptions here. Huge that I can think of three. Number one, that you're saved. I'm assuming if you're here and that you're 
you, you call, you've called on the name of Christ before some time in your life that you're a Christian. I know not every one of you are saved. There's, there's no way. Um, it just statistically shows us that in a room, as we start getting more people, that not everyone's actually a Christian. Now, everyone might here think they're a Christian, but they're not. So I'm assuming, number one, that you, you might be saved. I'm assuming also that you, <laughs> he will grant those who will believe. I'm assuming that you're actually going to actually go lead someone to Jesus. There's a huge assumption that you're actually going to take salvation to people. Major assumption on my part. And I'm also assuming that you're thankful that you've been saved. So there's some huge assumptions here that I'm hoping is true. I'm hoping it's true. So we, we should be praying and thanking God for our salvation and the salvation that he will grant to those who will believe. Now, this, this is a very provocative statement. I understand it's provocative, and I'm saying it in order to be provocative. You're going to hear me wrong, maybe. I'm going to say it several times so you don't mishear me, because I'm not saying that you shouldn't spend time with your family. I'm not saying that. It's very good. It is the Lord's will if you have a family to spend time with them. I think that Christians, especially in America, and this is the context that which I live in, I hear this as an excuse way, way too much. And I, I shouldn't even say excuse. Reason, reason. I think we overemphasize the need to spend time with our spouse or kids because or so that we don't have to spend time around lost people. I think we use, I got to spend time with my family because I haven't seen them, you know, since yesterday. So that we, there's lost people, but I I am called as a dad to spend time with my children and my wife as a husband. And I think that some of us use that as an excuse so that we never have to be around lost people. We know that God calls us to be husbands and dads. We know that we're in the will of God if we're good husbands and good dads. Or good wives and good mothers. Or good brothers or good sisters to our family. And I think that because we're so scared to be around lost people, we will say... I got to spend time with my wife tonight. I hadn't seen her since yesterday morning. I got to spend time with my kids. I've only seen them um, once in the last 24 hours. Um, I'm not saying, listen to me, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be around your wife or kids or your family or your brothers or your sisters or your grandparents. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that I think a lot of us are so scared to be around lost people, we use that as an excuse and as a crutch never, never to be around lost people. Maybe, maybe it would be the Lord's will that we would take them with us and be around lost people. We're still hanging out with them, but we're hanging out with them and advancing the kingdom. It's just amazing. And and listen, I am guilty just as much as this as you are, if you're guilty of this. It's amazing how self-centered we are. How self-seeking we are. How easy it is for us to rationalize. I mean, I've got a fourth kid coming. My wife's pregnant. It is an absolutely great thing that I'm around them and helping and serving. It's a great thing. But it's wrong if I use them as an excuse or a crutch to never, ever be around lost people. So maybe your Friday or Saturday nights with your family once per month. Once per month could be spent with them and lost people. Maybe. Maybe your Thursday nights could involve lost people. Let me give you an example of why I think this is true. Just five weeks ago, six weeks ago, we did an entire series called In the Darkest Place where I talked about freedoms, I talked about being in the world, not of the world, I talked about what it should look like for us to engage and not sin, I talked about missional living, I talked about what what are some ideas or places we could go, I gave several examples. Conversation after conversation after conversation I've had with people, it doesn't seem like anybody thinks that they're going to actually do that. Some people are, but a lot of my conversations with people are like, that was a good good series, and I'm thinking about it um, in January, about getting that going. Missional living, that's what I'm going for. But I'm like, what about right now? 
you, you thought it was a good idea. When are, when are we going to start doing it? Just one example. I'm wondering. Um, I'm wondering if we're ever going to fully, and we won't fully, but in some in some ways, start thanking God for our salvation and for the salvation He'll grant to those who believe, and be proactive, be actually proactive in bringing about salvations for other people, instead of just always thinking it's a good idea. And always making excuses why we're never around lost people. I want to, I want to point you to a couple words here. I kind of hinted at them. The word mediator in verse 5. And the word ransom in verse 6. And I want you to see this. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. I kind of hinted at it last week, but I didn't really unpack it. Let's look at verse 1. First of all, I urge that supplications and prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now, it, that is not saying in the Greek, all people. It's saying anthropos. Anybody have taken anthropology, the study of man? This is the word anthropos. This is men. Paul is doing something here with these words. He is going to start using the word man in order to make a contrast when he talks about Jesus. Thanksgiving and prayers for all men or for men there in verse 2. And then it says... Um, for kings and people in high places. We read that, verse 3. This is good and is pleasing inside of our Lord, Savior, who desires, it says it again, all people. That's anthropos, again, right there in verse 4. All men. So, thanksgiving for all men who desires all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. You see it again there in verse 5. And then right after that, he says, the man. The man, Christ Jesus. He's, he's using the word men, men. Men, in order to build up, when you see this word, the man, there it is. The man, Christ Jesus. He's wanting that to really stand out massively and huge. And this is why. Um, a lot of us, when we think about God, um, we think about Jesus being, we think about him being God and so distant, so far off and so just huge and vast and we can't get our minds around him. But Paul is trying to, emphasize the humanity of him as well. We can approach humanity much easier than we can approach deity because we are human and we understand humanity better. And so he's trying to emphasize this word, men, 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 the man. So as we come to him in prayer, we won't think he's this huge, vast. We can't even wrap our minds around it. He says he is the man, Christ Jesus. And so this is trying to help us see that we have confidence to approach Someone who is exactly like us. He is God, but he is man. And we can come to him knowing that he is like us. He understands us and that he is willing to answer and hear our prayers. So now when we start thinking about it. God is saying to us through the Apostle Paul, the man Christ Jesus. He, he, he's more approachable. He, you're, you're more likely, I believe, to want to go to him in prayer and start praying for these four things. Now, here's another thing. Mediator. Mediator. Mediator is someone who works with both sides in a dispute to attempt to help them reach an agreement. So there is a dispute between God and man, mostly on the side of God. He has a big beef with us. <laughs> We're sinners and wretchedly, horribly sinful and we have spit in his face willfully because we're not willing to, to do his will. And so we need someone to mediate between us because, because we're sinful, we cannot come to God. He is perfectly holy and will not have us in his presence as sinful. And so we need somebody to come between us. Now, here's the most amazing thing is that God takes his son and puts him between us. So now we are able to get to God because of his son. He himself gave us himself, Jesus. Now, this is where it gets interesting because we see that in verse 6 where it says he gave himself as a ransom. Um, when we usually think about the word ransom, it's associate, associated with a kidnapping in that kind of sense. And it's a payment for a child, for you to get your child back and to save them from harm. That's what a ransom is. My child has been taken. Here's the payment. I want my child to be safe. This ransom that's being told is not to um, 
keep Jesus from harm, but he's putting his son forward as a payment so that he will be killed for us on our behalf. That's the ransom being paid. Now that we can, that ransom has been paid, we can have a relationship with him. This is the gospel. Justin Martyr, he was a, a first century Christian. He says this, God gave his own son a ransom for us. The holy, who is Jesus, for transgressors. The sinless for the sinful. The righteous for the unrighteous. The immortal for the mortal. That's the gospel. The gospel is not... Bow your head real fast. I hope I have got you emotional right now. Quickly pray this prayer and repeat after me. And you're all good and going to, G- you're, you're going to heaven. That's not the gospel. The gospel is repent now for your sin. You will perish outside of a relationship with Jesus. Repent of your sin. Let the mediator, the ransom, become your mediator and ransom. Repent of your sin and, and put your faith in him. Repent. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Start living on mission for him. Be baptized. Let that outward action be a symbol of the inward thing that's been happened. Namely, that you've been cleansed from your sin and you're going to start living for him. That's the gospel. And if you would do that, you would be saved. You would be transferred, as Colossians 1 says, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the glorious Son. All of us can proclaim that gospel. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering what it's going to be, what's going to have to happen for us to finally start proclaiming that good news, that gospel to people. What has to happen in our lives? What has to capture your affections in order for you to pull yourself out of day-to-day, lazy, self-oriented, it's all about me, and it be about Jesus? I want you to imagine this with me. Imagine if you truly lived a life reflecting that you are thankful for your salvation. If you started wrapping your mind around, I should be in hell right now. I, there's, without Jesus, Christian or not, the moment you sinned, you deserve hell right then. God would be totally just for killing you on the spot and sending you to hell. The moment you sin, which is very early on. I've got, I've got three children and one coming. They, they, we begin sinning, all of us, very, very soon. The first moment we sin or the fact that we're even born into a sinful a corrupt human nature we should be in hell and if we start really wrapping our minds around that and thanking god whether we're saved or not wrapping our minds around i should be in hell right now but because of god's good grace either because of his salvific grace in my life or his prevenient grace which is let me be alive as a non-believer If I start wrapping my mind around that and truly understanding that he is allowing me to breathe right now. Would your life look different? What more would you be doing in your life? Maybe you would spend less of your free time on yourself and more of your free time on Jesus. Look, I know we all have responsibilities. We all have stuff that we have to do. We got school, we got work, we got our families. But we all have, and if you would just stop and, 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 and realize how much free time you have. We all have a vast amount of free time where we keep our heads stuck in the television. We keep our heads stuck in our Facebooks or we have our heads stuck in our families. And that's not a bad thing, but it shouldn't be the only thing if we're gonna, it's going to keep us away from lost people. Maybe you would... Um, what more could you do? Maybe you would start seeking out mentors. Maybe you would start seeking out people who could come alongside of you and start pointing out areas you could get better. Maybe you would start spending more time in the scriptures. Maybe you would start being consistent in your quiet time or consistent in your devotional life, knowing more about Jesus, falling in love with Christ more. 
maybe that's something you would start doing if you really started wrapping your mind around the, the thankful heart you should have for your salvation. Maybe, um, maybe you would really join a community group rather than just thinking it's a good idea. Maybe you would start getting into a community group, having accountability and serving the city. Maybe, maybe you're in a community group and you would say, I'm getting out of this community group and I'm starting my own community group in my neighborhood because if I look around my my house, all these people around me are lost. Maybe I should bring them here and start doing life with these people that God has placed within a 100, 200 yard vicinity of my house and doing real community with them. Having me over, showing them hospitality, eating steak with them, praying for them, just inviting them into your community. Maybe it would look different if you started getting your mind wrapped around what it means to be truly thankful. Maybe you would start giving for the very first time to churches. Maybe if you're already giving and it's just kind of half-hearted giving, you would start giving what God wants. You wouldn't keep your money away from God. If you were truly thankful, and I know degree, some degree we are, when we stop to think that, man, I'm so glad I'm not going to hell, to some degree we are. But if we started, as I said before, getting this book, getting by ourselves and reading, just reading, what, what did the people in this book look like? And how, how different should I live? I'm not going to come with any preconceived ideas about what Christians are supposed to do or not do. I'm just going to read this and see how these people are going to live. We just got by ourselves. What would change in your life? What would change? Let me read this to you. This is missional living. Definition of missional living from a young budding theologian. It says, missional living is the act of living our lives constantly showing the light of the gospel, yet also putting ourselves in position where the gospel can be proclaimed and living our lives purposely so that the gospel of grace and of love of Jesus Christ might be shared. Not just thought of, not just displayed by our actions, but verbally shared with our mouths into the ears of them. I think all of us can start doing this if we start getting a hold of and a handle on our salvation. Close your eyes and let me read this text to you. This is about Jesus. This is a text about what he did for us. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich men in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Listen to this verse. This is massive. This is massive. Your salvation, my salvation. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's will 
from eternity past always to put forward his son for you and for me on our behalf for our propitiation, for the removal of his wrath on us, for our expiation, for our total cleansing of all of our sin. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Can our minds even begin to think about that grace, that mercy, that love that God is displaying towards us? And would it be that our lives would be transformed and different if we thought that a father put forward his own son and it was always the plan from eternity past to crush him? Would you crush your son? It was his plan from all eternity. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. And the righteous one, my servant, mate, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. He will make us righteous by bearing our iniquities. As we go into our time of worship. I think that some of us need to spend some time in repentance. For our half-hearted attempt. As long as we've been saved. Our half-hearted attempt. At being on mission. I think as we start thinking about. The payment paid for us, the vastness of our separation because of our sin and what it's supposed to do if we're truly thankful for salvation to spurn us on into mission. I think that we need to repent of our lackluster attempt at mission. And start asking God what our lives should look like, how our lives should be transformed. Because we've been saved. I want to invite you during this first song. If you need to, stay seated and pray. And just stand as you're ready to come and start worshiping with us. Worshiping, worshiping with us all. To proclaim to God a true, thankful heart for your salvation. I'm going to pray and I just want you to, as the Lord leads, respond. Jesus, I just start with my with my own life. I just confess my my utter selfishness. God, there's no way. There's no way if I take true stock of my life. There's no way that I'm living for you the way I should be. Gotta confess that is sin. I pray for my friends here this morning. As the Holy Spirit might be leading to a different life, a life that reflects your glory more than it has been, a life that's more willing to give away than to keep time, money, possessions. That as the Holy Spirit comes and convicts, God, that they would be receptive, that we would be receptive to your leading. That we wouldn't be satisfied with week in, week out attendance to church and think that makes us a good Christian. You used Patrick, a nominal Christian. You gave him a passion for the lost and you changed the world. Would you do that through us this morning? A small collection of believers in the city of Rock Hill. It's, it's more than you need to change the face of this city. It's more than you need to chase, change the face of this world. You did it with 12 men. If we would capture your mission. We would no longer live selfishly. We'd realize we have a short time. 
make us truly thankful for our salvation. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, if there's anyone here who's never put their faith in Jesus, truly, I pray that you regenerate their heart. I pray that they would speak to me after church. I pray that they would speak to me with someone they trust here. That they would say they know their life is not with Christ. They know that they are far from Jesus and they need Jesus in their life. I pray that you would save them. And that you would use them mightily for your kingdom. You would change the face of the world with them. If we, who are Christians now, can't get motivated by the gospel and by the cross to start living for you, that you would save new people and that they would do it. That you would change the face of this church, that we would no longer be satisfied with how we're plugging along and getting along, but that you would radically change us and make us look different. Without the Holy Spirit, this is impossible. We pray for your help. We pray for your leading. We confess that we absolutely need you. Be with us now as we worship you through song. May we repent. May we stand. May we worship. May we proclaim to you how good you are. May we live differently. Pray these things in Jesus' name.